morning. So good to be with you today. Uh, welcome to Brandywine. And uh, the candle's lit. I believe it is Michelle Hensley and Gail Davis who are in Celebrate Recovery, help lead Sierra uh, to Christ Thursday night. Let's celebrate with Sierra. About 10 months ago, we gave a special offering above and beyond our regular giving uh, to purchase a campground in Brazil to help reach teenagers. And through your generosity, that Sunday uh, offering was uh, over $60,000 just for the, for, for the campground. And uh, here just recently, 64 teenagers made decisions for Christ at that camp. So, yay God. Well, hey, we are continuing our teaching series on Paul's letter to the Romans. We're calling it the goodness and power of the gospel, the goodness and power of the gospel, because the good news about Jesus Christ really is good. Did you know that? I mean, it is the best news you'll ever hear. It's good in every sense of the word, and it is powerful. The gospel doesn't just contain the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And God has written His Word down just for you and me, and His Word is alive. Did you know that? His Word is alive? And I'm going to tell you one simple bottom line fact, and that is if you'll let the Word of God become a daily part of your life, God Almighty will change you into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And the power of the gospel will make you more like Jesus. You'll become more loving. You'll become more uh, joy in your life. You'll be more at peace and gentle and patient and kind and, and faithful, and you'll have more self-control. Well, hey, in this, in this teaching series, we're looking through the lens of uh, some specific questions that Romans both ask and answers. And if you missed either of the uh, messages, uh, in the past two weeks, you'll want to make sure you go back and listen to those because Pastor Matt did an incredible job. He knocked it clear out of the park on Romans chapter 1. Now, am, I, am I telling the truth? That was just good stuff. Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer once asked, quote, if, if, if you had only one hour to spend with someone to talk to them about Christianity, what would you say to them? And here was Here's Francis Schaeffer's reply. He said, quote, I'd spend the first 50 minutes trying to convince them that they were lost because failing to see that that is the reason most people find Christ irrelevant. They don't realize they're lost. And that's the exact same approach that the Apostle Paul takes in the first three chapters of Romans. Uh, I mean, after, after, uh, reading the scripture and listening along, you know, last Sunday, it's kind of like, whoa, we're all lost, you know. Paul's number one goal is to convince each of us that we are deeply lost and that there's literally nothing that you and I could ever do on our own, within our own power, to repair the damage that sin has caused. And you're thinking, where's the good news in all this? Well, Jesus, just wait, we're going to talk about that. But Paul explains that the problem is so bad that it's something only God can fix. Problem of sin. 
And in Romans chapter 2, Paul asks this question, he says, is religion the answer? Is religion the answer? You know, sometimes when I meet new people for the first time, they'll ask me what I do for a living. And I got to be honest with you, a lot of times I don't want to tell them. And here's why. I mean, we could be having a wonderful conversation with somebody and it's going along great. And then they ask, what do you do for a living? And once I tell them I'm a pastor, the conversation immediately changes. It goes in one or two directions. If, if they're kind of what I call churchy, uh, have a churchy background, and I tell them I'm a pastor, sometimes it turns into this weird hyper-religious spiritual talk like, oh, well, praise the Lord, you know, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, uh, glory to God, I'm, I'm a Christian too, Brother Mark. I'm thinking, what? The other direction it can go if, if they're not a believer in Christ is the whole conversation can just tank. I mean, it can just kind of go south real quick, you know. And I've, I've had people ask, well, what do you do for a living? I'll tell them, well, I'm a pastor. And they'll go, oh, well, no offense, but I'm not a religious person. I really don't, I really don't like religious people. And I just started responding back when, they, when that happens is, well, that's awesome because I'm not a religious person either. You know, I really don't like religious people either. <laughs> and once they, once they have that confused look on their face, I'll tell them it's true. Religious people turn me off as well. And then they'll ask, well, how can you be a pastor and not like religious people? And then I'll try to explain to them what I'm going to try to explain to you today. You see, religion is an outward expression rather than an inward transformation. And it's basically, it tries to reduce Christianity down to a bunch of rules and the hopes that I, I'm trying to find my path to God and be right with God in that way. Religion tries to reduce Christianity down to a list of do's and don'ts. And this is so common. And it was common during Jesus' day as well. There's a group of people that were very, quote, religious, very outwardly expressive, and they were known as the Pharisees. And quite honestly, they, they lived a pretty outstanding life. I mean, as, as Christians, how many commandments do we have? We have 10, right? The Pharisees, they had 613 commands they lived by. And they memorized every single one of them. And they did their best to outwardly live these commands. But the problem, the problem was that it, it was not internally commands. It was not internally real. And Jesus despised this type of religion. The Pharisees were all about how they looked. And so they, they would pray on the street corners loud and long and, and so that everybody would, hey, look, they're spiritual, you know. Um, when they went to the temple to give their offerings, uh, they'd, they'd hold up what they're giving, you know, to everybody that could see. Look how much money I'm giving today. They dress in such a way where, look, look how holy I am. And they refused to hang out with certain people 
You know, look at who I don't hang out with. I'm outwardly religious. And Jesus just hated this. The Pharisees thought that doing outward religious deeds would put them on a path to make them right with God. And no wonder Jesus hates religion and legalism. He came to provide the only path to God. When Jesus left heaven and came to earth, he lived a sinless life. The Bible says he bore the penalty of our sins. He bled and died on the cross. He rose again from the grave so that you and I would have a path to be made right with God. Amen. He's the only path to God. He's the only way. And the reason Jesus hates religion and legalism is because it leads people the exact opposite way of the gospel. The root word of religion literally means a return to bondage. All right? And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus came to do. That's the exact opposite of the gospel. Jesus said, I've come to set you free. Now, obviously, if you do a study on the religions of the world, Christianity is going to be considered a religion, right? So don't get, I get it, don't get hung up on that. Because Paul is taking a whole chapter here in Romans chapter 2 to say religion is not the answer for our sin problem. In fact, it makes it worse. And Christianity is nothing like that. Paul's explaining that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship with a living God who loves you and wants to be a part of your life. God sent Jesus to reveal himself to us so that we could get to know him. And so that we, we no longer have to be a slave to sin and that we could become more and more like him in his image. So this morning I want to share with you three compelling reasons why you and I need to stay way clear of man-made religion, all right? And, and why you don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. You can quote your pastor on that, all right? Uh, in Romans chapter 1, Paul explains why all of us need the gospel, and he paints this graphic picture of the corruption of the human heart, race. Paul explains how lost we become when we worship and serve the things God created instead of the Creator Himself. And how when any of us cease to put God first in our lives, that that in itself becomes a gateway to every other sin, whether it be sexual immorality or greed or hate, murder, gossip. That's not the real sin. The real sin is that He's not first in our life and we put something in front. We put something on the throne of our heart that should not be there. And Paul's explaining to all of us that the religious people who were listening to, uh, to all this in chapter 1 are thinking Paul's only talking to the Gentiles. <laughs> and so they're like, yeah, you preach it, Paul. Man, they are some messed up people, them Gentiles, you know. They're pagans, you know. But not us. We were raised on religion, you know. We're different than those people. And the thing about religious people is that they, they have a hard time seeing their own sin. And so Paul takes an entire chapter, chapter 2, to explain how their being religious is not the remedy of the problem of sin, all right? In fact, it just makes it worse. And Paul shoots straight with them in verse 1. Won't you say it with me? Uh, one voice, you ready? So, do you think that you can judge those other people? You are wrong. You too are guilty of sin. You judge them, but you do the same things they do. So, when you judge them, you are really condemning yourself. So, if you're following along here in your notes this morning, uh, let me share with you three problems with man-made religion, all right? 
The first problem with religion is that, number one, no one meets the standard. In fact, no one even comes close, is what God tells us. Paul, he's looking at these religious folks and saying, hey, don't you pretend for one moment that you live up to the same standards you're demanding on these other people. Your sin is just as bad. In fact, it's even worse because you're religious. And God's standard for what constitutes moral goodness, a good person, I guess, is embodied in the Ten Commandments. And here's the problem. The only people who think they can keep God's laws are those who don't know them. <laughs> All right? Because God's laws are perfection. Yeah? And none of us are perfect, right? So Jesus said all of us have broken every one of them. Um, in fact, let's, I won't go through all the Ten Commandments, but let me just go through a few. And I'll prove my point here, all right? Uh, the Ten Commandments are probably the best example of what, where our hearts stand with the Lord. And, uh, and I'll read a few and give a short explanation. And what makes these so hard is when I say, I have never, <laughs> I have never, and you're kind of like, oh my gosh. Right. So, um, so you evaluate how, if you've never done this, all right? Uh, commandment number one, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Are you able to say, I have never put anything before God in my life? Are you able to say that? Now, I've noticed in the Christian circles, sometimes we get tripped on a, on a lot of things, but some people get tripped up on this with their children and their grandchildren, you know? They become an idol of their heart, a place where only God should be. Are you able to say, I've never put anything or anyone before God in my life? Are you able to say that I've never loved or trusted or obeyed anything more than God? God has always been first in my thoughts, affections, and actions, and that worshiping Him has always been the greatest passion in my life. How are you doing so far? Number one. I know, I, I got a big fat F. I don't beg you, but let, let's try another commandment. Not necessarily in any particular order here. God says, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. Can you honestly say, I have never taken anything that doesn't belong to me? I have never done that. That includes cheating in school. That includes downloading illegal music. That includes fudging on your taxes. I mean, can you say, I have never taken extra Chick-fil-A sauce and stockpiled my refrigerator? <laughs> Check the refrigerators out right now. <laughs> or that I've never wasted my company's time surfing the web or tweeting or Facebooking, that's stealing. How you doing? Let's try another commandment. Third commandment, you shall not lie. Lie. Can you honestly say, I've never bent the truth to get out of a bad situation? Can you honestly say that I have, I have never stretched the truth to make myself look better? or that I have never slandered anyone. I've always told the, the truth in every situation regarding every person I've ever known, and that I've always fully fulfilled every promise that I've ever made. Can you say that? All right, let's go on to the next one. Uh, number four, 
you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Can you say that I have never had sex with someone outside the bonds of marriage? Now, a handful of you this morning are thinking, hey, I think I got this one, all right? But remember, Jesus actually raised the bar on this command. He said, if you've ever lusted in your heart about someone you're not married to, if you've ever entertained sexual thoughts about someone that you're not married to, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. How are you doing on this one? Let's try another one, okay? God says, you shall not murder. And I know most of you are going, yes, I finally got, I never, I've not broken this one. But did you know that Jesus actually raised the bar commandment on this one as well? In other words, are you able to say, I have never had a hateful thought toward anybody? That I have never taken the slightest pleasure in seeing harm done to another human being, and I have never wished harm on anyone that angered me? Because if you have, Jesus said, if you have, then it's the same as murder. How'd you do on those? Yeah, well, the Apostle Paul pretty much gave the religious people the same quiz in chapter 2. In verse 21, Paul says, you tell others not to steal, but don't you steal too? I mean, you say it's wrong to commit adultery, but don't you commit adultery too? You commit, you condemn idolatry, don't you use items stolen from pagan temples? What's Paul doing? He's leveling the playing field, right? He's calling them out. You, you religious folks, you think you're holier than thou, and you're not. In fact, you're even worse because of your religion. And the Bible says, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. And then Paul just spells it out in the next chapter, chapter 3. And I'm not going to get into chapter 3 because that's, that's next for next week. But... He just spells it out, and he says this, and why don't you say it with me? No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. And Paul's like, all of you have broken every commandment. You know you have. The law simply shows how lost and sinful we are. So you see, religion doesn't help. It actually makes it worse. Religion says, I can make myself right with God by what I do or don't do. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't run with girls who do, you know. <laughs> but what, what does Romans 3.20 say? say? No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. We, we can't make ourselves right with God by religion being religious, doing good works. So the question then becomes, well, why the law? Why is it even there then? Well, the purpose of the law is to show us that how sinful we are, and, and the only remedy is a Savior. Not good works, but a Savior. We don't need religion, we need a Savior. And here's the good news, God has provided a way for you and I to be made right with, with Him. But, and it is, there's only one way, and it is by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in Christ and Christ alone. Religion can't save you. Being a morally good person can't save you. Doing good works can't save you. 
So the problem with man-made religion, number one, no one meets the standard or even comes close. And number two, motives matter. What's your reason behind what you do, these good deeds? The Bible has a lot to say about our motives. And the motive, when we think of a motive, a motive is the underlying reason for an action. And the Bible says God is more interested in our motives than, than he is even in our actions. Our motives are more important than in our obedience. So, and here's more, he's more concerned about the underlying reason why we're doing what we're doing. And the Bible says God looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. And here in chapter 2 and in verse 6 and 7, Paul explains to us that for works to be good in God's sight, they have to be done seeking God's glory and delight, not our own. Motives matter. Charles Spurgeon tells a story about an ancient English king and a carrot farmer. <laughs> Anybody know a carrot farmer? <laughs> uh, and it, it, he illustrates this point here with the he said, one day the carrot farmer showed up at the king's court with the biggest carrot the king had ever seen. <laughs> this is a great story. <laughs> the, far, the farmer said, your majesty, when I harvested this, this huge carrot, I knew it was fit for a king. So I'm bringing it to you as a gift to honor you. And the king was greatly moved and said, quote, you know what? I own the land next to your farm. I'm going to give you 300 acres so that you can grow more carrots and enjoy the profits. One of the king's, of course, everybody's hearing this, you know, and one of the king's noblemen heard this and thought, wow, if the king gives 300 acres in response to a mere carrot, imagine what he'd give in response to a real gift. So what does he do? He goes out the next night and he buys the finest horse in all of England, and the next day he leads that before the king. And he, 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 here he is in front of the king. He says, O king, when I saw this horse, I knew it was fit for only a king, so I'm bringing it to you as a gift. And the king, being wise, a wise ruler, he saw right through his selfish action. He thanked the nobleman and said nothing more. Seeing the nobleman's confused expression, the king then said, you know, Yesterday, the carrot farmer was given that carrot to me. Today, you are given the horse only to yourself. Motives matter. A good deed done with selfish motive is, is not really a good deed. And the Bible says the human heart is the most deceitful in, 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 of all things. You know, some, you ever heard somebody say, well, just follow your heart, honey. That's the worst advice you can ever give. The heart's <laughs> deceitful. You know, the heart gives the king's horses for themselves. And we can easily fool ourselves on why we do what we do. Sometimes we, we do it out of pride or selfish desires. So what is right motivation when we give to the king, the king of kings? Well, the Bible says whatever we do, it needs to be out of worship, it needs to be out of love, and it needs to be out of grateful heart, right? And so Jesus said, well, you should tithe. You should bring 10% uh, of your income back to God. What's your motive in doing that, though? Well, you've heard us say it before. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Everything we do has to be out of a heart of worship 
and love and gratitude. When I give my, my, my tithes, I love the church, but I'm not giving it to the church. I'm giving it to the God I love. So we ask ourselves, well, am, am I doing this in the right motive? Here's, here's a question to ask. If there was no visible payoff for doing this, would I still do it? I know God says he'll bless you if you put him first in every area of your life, including giving, but is that the only reason you give? To get 300 acres? <laughs> Another question that kind of cuts through is, am I doing this for the praise of others or how it makes me feel? And number four, if I had to suffer for continuing to, uh, what God has called me to do, would I continue doing it? when it comes to giving and serving and sacrificing for him. All right, so motives matter. Number, number three, the problem with man-made religion. No one meets the standard, motives matter. And number three, religion fuels our pride. Religion fuels our pride. You know, pride makes us think we're better than somebody else. Or, and that we're right and everyone's wrong. And, and Jesus just despises this attitude of our heart, the pride. And it's so common and relevant uh, in churches even today. The thinking that we're right, our church is right, and everybody else is wrong. I mean, that we're the only ones teaching the real truth. Have you heard that one? You know? And when that happens, churches become hypercritical, joyless, cynical. I mean, legalism is just a... a, a, a a killjoy, isn't it? It robs, it robs you of every ounce of joy that God meant for you to live in. And what happens a lot of times in these churches, they become more known for what they're against than what they're for. You know, you look at Jesus and it's kind of like, he was nothing like that. I mean, the sinners love to hang out with him, right? And these churches that are like this, they just become kind of cult-like. Knowing, known for what they're against. And so, I just want to go public here as your pastor this morning and tell you that here at Brandywine Community Church, we are for other churches. Are you with me? We are for other churches. And let, let's just do the world a big favor. If, if, if you like, I'm glad if you like our style of worship, if you like our style of teaching, that's great. But let's never go around saying our way is better. Right? Let's never go around saying our way is the best way. Our style of worship or our teaching style is simply a reflection of who we are, who God made us and called us to be. That doesn't make us any better than any other church. That's why we pray for other churches around here, you know? That's why we, we help churches out. When we're blessed financially, we, we help give them enough. So let it, let it be known, we are for other churches. Amen? Amen. All right. We're not against them. We don't think we're better than they are. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, refers to pride as the great sin. After mentioning it was pride that led to the devil's downfall, Lewis says, quote, pride is what leads to every other vice. He says, pride is a sin that we dislike when we see it in others, but most of us are blind to it in ourselves. He says, anytime you find 
your religious life is making you feel like you're good, that you're better than someone else, you can be sure, quote, that that's not by God. That's the enemy. That's the devil. C.S. Lewis concludes by saying, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. He said, you better just forget about yourself altogether. Paul confronts the pride that he sees in the religious people in chapter uh, 2 and 3 of Romans. And Romans 3, 27, he says, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on what? It's based on faith so that we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. So let's look at a comparison here of what Paul's saying about religion versus the gospel, okay? When you look at religion, religion focuses on what I do to make myself right with God. The gospel focuses on what Jesus has already done to make me right with God. Amen? Jesus did not come to make us religious or turn us uh, back to bondage. He came to free us, to free us, to set us free. Religion is all about me. The gospel is all about my relationship with Jesus. See the difference? Religion is spelled do. The gospel is spelled done. Amen? Religion says, I'm trying to prove who I am by my performance. The gospel says, I am who I am because God's goodness and mercy and his grace in my life. Religion says, if I obey God, God will love me. If I obey, God will love me. But the gospel says, because God loves me, I want to obey. See the difference? It's so, I mean, it's just so... The gospel, the kingdom of God is just upside down in a good way. And I'd like to close by sharing with you several key words. I call them uh, key heart choices that'll help you stay clear of religion, man-made religion in your life. Are you ready? The first one is love and grace. Love and grace. Christianity is about a love relationship between you and the God who loves you. If, you've, if you will always make love your greatest aim, you'll not find yourself ensnared with religion. You won't. Love does never think that it's better than somebody else. Love always believes the best in others. Amen? Love and grace. Notice that we added grace there. Fully experiencing God's grace is one of the best antidotes for thinking you'd ever be better than somebody else. I mean, grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's like, I didn't earn this. I couldn't earn this. It's a gift. I didn't deserve to have my sins forgiven. That's God's unmerited favor. It's impossible to fully experience God's grace and want to be religious at the same time. Once you've experienced God's grace, you're like, oh man, that religious spirit, it makes me want to puke. It does. There's nothing worse. 
And here's what I've learned over the years about grace. If you teach a series on grace, some people, they get their nose out of joint. I mean, and they, they just think, oh, you're teaching too much on grace. And I don't know what they're thinking. I know what they're thinking. They're thinking too much teaching on grace will give people license to want to sin even more. That's what they think. They're afraid that people will think I can get away with sinning more now that I understand grace. And so we ask, well, well, won't too much grace lead to even more sinning? No. The answer is, if you ever fully experience God's grace in your own life, you'd never think that. I mean, you'd know that grace would never lead you to more sinning. It's just the opposite. You know what? Because of God's grace in my life, it encourages me to want to live for Him. It encourages me to, to want to live a godly life and, and to keep... It's really grace that keeps me from continuing to want to sin. See the difference? The gospel flips everything around. Religion says I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says I'm accepted, therefore I obey. It's out of love and grace that I want to obey. The gospel produces a whole different kind of obedience. It's not obedience motivated out of, oh boy, I'm doing this so I can be saved. It's motivated out of, wow, all that God's done for me. I am so in love with Him. I'm so filled with gratitude. And that is the next one. The next heart choice that will help you overcome man-made religion is gratitude and generosity. Gratitude and generosity. Hands down, gratitude is one of the healthiest of all the expressions. And once you've fully experienced God's grace, you'll never quite get over the, the fact that God has forgiven you of all your sins. I didn't, I didn't deserve this. I can only receive it as I put my faith in what he's done for me. Living with a heart of gratitude deepens your faith because you're constantly acknowledging where your blessings come from, Right? You're like, man, I know I, I wouldn't have anything if it hadn't to do with God. Amen. Thanksgiving, think about this. Uh, one of my good friends in, in life group Thursday night brought this out. Thanksgiving is the gateway into God's presence. The psalmist said we, we are to enter what? His gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. Once you practice living in his presence, you're not going to want to do anything. You're not going to have anything to do with religious spirit. A thankful heart then leads to what? A generous heart. You know, giving is the most natural thing that you and I can do when we really love someone and when our heart is so thankful that they're in our life. And so that's why we, we, the Bible says giving is an act of worship. To the Lord. The next heart choice that will help you to overcome and stay clear of, of religion is lordship. And I added the word empowered because with lordship, this is what happens is he empowers us to live out this life that he's called us to live. You know, when I was a little boy, my parents were in uh, full-time ministry. They took me to church, and I believed them. 
You know, uh, they told me ab about Jesus and that he was the son of God, and I believed them. They told me God raised him from the dead, and I believed them. But you know, I took everybody else's word for it, but I didn't ever take God's. <laughs> I hope that settles in your heart this morning. Because you don't have to take anybody's word for it but his. All right? As a boy, I asked Jesus in my, in my life to, to, to take away my sins, and he did. I accepted him as my savior. Now, the idea of lordship was still foreign concept to me, and I, I'd given him my sin, I was thankful for that, but I was still making my own decisions in life. He wasn't lord. It wasn't until my sophomore year in college I knelt at an altar like this, and I said, God, from here on out, I want you to be Lord in every area of my life, in all my relationships, in every decision, major decision I do, I want, I want you to call the shots. I want you to take the reins from here on out. And every area, because he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all, right? So, and you know what? I still can't get over the fact that he filled me with his spirit that day. I can't get over the fact that he empowered me to be able to walk with him, not in perfection. Man, I'm not a perfect guy. But I can tell you this, I'm different now. I'm different because he's Lord of my life and he's given me power to be able to walk with him. The Bible says we're called to live a holy life. God said, be holy as I am holy. He didn't say that to frustrate us. He didn't say that to give you anxiety. He said it because it's possible through the power of God that works in your life. We're not called, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about a heart that just wants to please God. It's bent that way. It's like, I love him so much. I don't want to do anything disappointing. I just do it out of love. And out of a grateful heart. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It is the power of God for everyone who believes it. Now listen to me now. The difference between religion and what God wants you to have is going to require his power being released in your life. And that can't happen unless you make him Lord. And once you make him Lord of your life... He'll take away from you the desire to do the things that are opposed to the will of God. And he'll give you the desire to do the things that give you joy and love and peace and patience. God Almighty will give you the attributes of his son, Jesus Christ. You want that? Well, here in this holy moment this morning, he wants that for you too. Let's pray together. Just uh, nobody wrestling around. I am going to ask the elders and the life group leaders to come and prepare communion. Father God, thank you today that you did not come to return us to bondage, but you came to set us free. Yes. The power of the Holy Spirit this morning. God, for those of us maybe this morning who are just stuck in a performance mindset, we're trying, we're on that treadmill. We're trying to earn our way through good works. We're good Pharisees. Lord, this is not pleasing to you. This is not the way that we make ourselves right with you. By doing good works.
And some of us even need to look at our motives because they're not pure in why we're doing what we're doing. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel, the good news, that we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Thank you for the law. It gives us, it shows us how sinful we are. It gives us guidelines uh, to go down the tracks, but it has no power to get us there. It's only through faith in Christ and Christ alone and through your Holy Spirit dwelling in us that we're able to get down the tracks. So I pray the truth of the gospel will penetrate every heart here this morning and that we'll never be the same. God, I know... I pray right now for those who maybe have made you Savior, you've taken away their sin, but they've never made you Lord. They're still not the decision maker, or you're not the decision maker in their life. They've never made you Lord. So just tell him in your heart and mind, God, I give you the reins this morning. From here on out, you be the Lord of my life. You call the shots. God, would you slay any selfish pride that is in my heart? God, forgive me of foolish pride. Empty me of me, Jesus, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me to live for you. Take away from me the desire to do things that are opposed to your will and give me the desire that give me joy and love and peace. Prepare our hearts right now for communion as we reflect on what Jesus has done for us on the cross, his crucifixion, death on our behalf. He gave his life for us. Thank you, Jesus. And we celebrate our sins have been completely forgiven and that God's grace has been applied to our hearts and lives. We thank you for this. And humble servants, we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Can we celebrate today those who prayed that prayer?